0: You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I'm your host, J.D. Rieger. With me on this episode is the three-tiered artist, writer, director, and filmmaker, or no, writer, director, and musician, Yeah, Chris McCoy.
1: <laughs> and filmmaker. I yeah. guess director and filmmaker, but... Yeah, yeah, filmmaker, a... director,
0: kind of the same thing, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, filmmaker, I feel like it's a broader category.
0: Uh, I feel like that, I could include writing or producing or whatever.
1: Yeah, but you like uh, to me like you know if you're just a director or you're just a writer, you know, then that's your that's what your your it, your goal is or your your title is. And if you're a filmmaker, that implies like a sort of a broader sure. uh, range of of uh, uh, skills. But you know, I'm I've written, produced, directed three features, and I don't even know how many short films and, uh, um, documentaries, documentary. Yeah. Short, yeah. Documentaries, uh, of course, uh, short films, music videos. I do a lot of music videos these days. Oh yeah. For anybody. Uh, Exciting? Uh, yeah, I've done a, I did one for uh, Weirdo from Memphis a few, a couple oh, yeah. of years ago, uh, back when, before anybody knew who he was, before really. Before he stole Gonerfest by Climbing on the Roof. Yeah. Wow, what an incredible performance. Incredible performance. Can we cuss in this? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Okay. Incredible fucking performance. Oh, my God. Just <laughs> out of this world. And, uh, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. A bunch of people. <laughs> Well, what do you
0: consider your primary discipline? Is it film? Is it. I, I think it's. Maybe it's not journalism, that kind of writing. It's. Yeah, it's,
1: I, I'm a writer. I would writer. guess
0: it's film, then music,
1: then journalism. Is that the order? I don't know. Uh, I make Mad Beach says I'm a musician. Yeah. <laughs> I take his word for it. <laughs> I, I, it made me feel good when he said that. Um, I always wanted to be a writer uh, growing up, and then I always wanted to be a rock star growing up, and then I always wanted to be to make movies growing up after i saw star wars i saw star wars in the theater when i was six years old i saw it 13 times 1977 and 78 wow that's uh, a lot in the theater and uh uh that just made me want to like do that uh i guess i've always been uh undiagnosed ad adhd so i just wanted to do everything (laughs) really uh but writing i guess is my first love and that kind of uh, that's how i approach filmmaking um i think as i've gotten older and gotten more and done it more i think that's that, that just looking at it like a writer is a very limited perspective uh the thing about film is it's like you know high opera used to be it's all the arts you know put together yeah uh and you have to be good at visual composition. You have to understand editing. You have to, you definitely have to understand writing. Now, though, I feel like. You have to understand sound and music too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sound. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just like, you know what I like about doing music videos? You don't have to record sound. Recording That's cool. sound is the, as you know, is the biggest pain in the ass in in filmmaking. Uh, and so, you know, music, doing music videos, like the sound's already there and you can just. You can just go nuts with the visuals, and and that, I feel like making music videos has really helped my visual sense a lot. Um, but uh, but you know I make most of my money uh, as a writer. Um, I've been a freelance writer since two thousand eight. Uh, I got laid off a magazine job the day before Obama was elected, and uh, thanks Obama. Thanks Obama. <laughs> yeah, I told him I was voting for him as I as I left, and that made him even matter. Uh, That's but, funny. Was this a hyper conservative? It was magazine? Rather, It was a rather conservative magazine. Yeah, you don't have rather, to throw anybody under the bus unless you want. No, no, name I'm not names. gonna. Uh, well, you know, yeah, it was a. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and I do. I write. I've written everything from anybody would pay me to write. Just about. I've written everything from uh, instructional manuals for Toyota and United uh, Technologies. I wrote. Um, I just Oh, man, you know, I've, I've written about music a lot. Uh, I've written about I'm, I'm the film and TV editor for Memphis Flyer right now. Sure. And, then, uh, and we're going to get to that. Yeah. OK. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know. I'm just uh, when you're a freelance writer, when you're a writer, you have to learn to just be a. To just say yes to everything, which yeah. gets me in trouble because I'm halfway through a, a, story right now that's late, and when we when we're done here, I got to rush back and finish it, and get it because I well, said yes to too many things. Well, we can run through these quick lightning rounds. No, no, no. It's <laughs> I'm here for you. And hey, listen, man, I've I've we have been trying to get this together for gosh as long as you've had this podcast. Just about. I yeah. think I think I first
0: approached you about maybe doing something over Zoom when I still lived in Chicago.
1: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's just been one thing after another, and every time we tried to. It hasn't happened and this time I was like damn it I'm doing this this time so I and but I very much appreciate you having me on. Thank oh, you very much. Thanks for doing it
0: You mentioned that you'd written uh, something for Toyota. I am also a former freelance writer and So I know what it's like to have to kind of fake the enthusiasm for something that maybe is not in your actual interest yeah. <laughs> But I mean, how do you get there when you're forced with like writing technical? Instructions for Toyota or whatever. How, how do you get there? Where- I'm
1: hungry. Okay. I need money is how I get there. <laughs> Baby for th- needs milk for that stuff. But having said that, um, and I will do st- I I will do st- I was a uh, I did social media consulting for several years back when you used to be able to get paid five bucks a pop to write tweets. Yeah, I was was that ever like- a thing? Yes, it was. I how was did bill- I miss that? I was billing like six grand a month for a while doing that. It oh, was dude. great. I loved it. Who did you tweet for? Oh man, can you not say? I, I can. T- I, well, it's, it's, that job's long gone now. Okay. So, I went to, at one point, I'll just do this quickly. Uh, at one point, I had forty-eight clients, uh, and I was going through a, a, a agency in New York City. And uh, that's the key, y'all. All y'all creative people out there in Memphis, the key is to get paid New York money and and pay Memphis bills. That's the key man you ain't lying (laughs) so that's uh, that's my problem i'm still on memphis money memphis money (laughs) (laughs) well i am too but uh um no i had all kind i did all kinds of stuff the funniest the the two well the one i had the entire time i did this this job for about uh, a little over two years the one i had the entire time was this place called bulbs direct i sold so many light bulbs on the internet you don't even understand and uh, then I I had Lockheed Martin for two weeks, wow. which was like, and the whole time I'm like, why does Lockheed Martin need a Twitter account? Am I going to buy an F-35? No, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But the funny is a very one, limited market. It's a very limited market. In in <laughs> retrospect, I understand what they were trying to do now, but nobody explained it to or me. Like the time.
0: damage control.
1: No, they need to get. They don't care about. They want to make it look like it is. It's a broad audience but really their audience are the 30 or 40 people who are going to decide who uh, what the the defense budget is right but they have to they have to create the illusion which is what social media is all about create the illusion that a lot of people are talking about and a lot of people care about it and it's i think we've realized now now in this late s- stage it, that that's all an illusion it's always been an illusion that that's and that's what social media is for and that's what I did. I used to say I polluted the internet when I did that. Uh, but I had this one client. So this is all your fault. This is, Well, it's not not my fault. Uh, <laughs> I had this one client. I'll just do this real quickly. As one client, they made tents. Okay. And they made, you know, like you go to like Bonnaroo or Coachella and they have those like dance tents, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, Okay. So they made those. Right. And the other thing they made, which was a new product, was something called blast resistant tents. So just think about that for a minute. Right, the absurdity of a blast-resistant tent, right? But so, yeah, I get them, and what part of my job is part of that job was I had to go find their earned media, things that people had written about them in the media, or videos of their stuff, and then I would have to, then I would put those in their Twitter feed with like you know this is a description or like a little come on or whatever you know. <laughs> so, the first week I did this, I started like doing what i did for everybody else i looked around where would they get their earned media and i saw that these blast resistant tents did not work because the headlines i were getting were like oil workers incinerated in blast resistant tent and like you know and this was also during like the afghanistan war and they were trying to sell it to afghan to, to the military and there were people getting killed in afghanistan who thought these tents were safe and they were not and so but I also found all these videos of people having the freaking time of their lives at Coachella in their product in those tents. So I did like a weeks of that. I'm like, this is what you need to improve your image. So then the feedback I get after week one is, no nah, man, we're trying to sell to the frackers in and the Permian Basin in South Dakota. So we need more about the blast resistant tents. And I'm like, y'all, these, these tents don't work. Yeah, you might I, want to target did, the Firefest crowd. Yeah, yeah don't yeah don't <laughs> don't do this. And so by so like week week two i did it again and they were like no you got to do you have to do the the blast resistant tents week three i was like okay the whole thing was all about how crappy these blast resistant tents were and they fired me (laughs) immediately i was like hey not my fault your tents don't work but that's what that job was like
0: (laughs) that that sounds like a trip
1: man. it was a trip it was interesting but but to get back to your original question um what a lot of times, I don't have to fake enthusiasm for stuff that I don't know. Uh, my favorite part of writing like this, that journalistic writing, is going and talking to people who are good at their job about what they do. And I can always find something interesting in that. I think that really... I, I'm I'm just a weird guy, <laughs> but I've I go back and I have really very introverted parts of my personality, and I have really extroverted parts of my personality. And in some ways, I'm a very private person. In some ways, I'm just a completely you know open book. But I feel like doing these stories, you go know, being able to go out, interview lots of different kinds of people, which is something I'm sure you can relate to. Yeah, I've I become more interested in people as I do it more, more and and more interested in people as. I get older. I think I, I, I just wanna, I, I want to learn about you know everything. And and some of my films have been like that. Um, and some of the scripts that I've written too. Um, my film uh, "Eat," which was uh, a, a film about um, working in restaurants. Uh, it was we had fifty-four speaking parts. It was a, a day in the life of three restaurants. Never, by the way, if you're an independent filmmaker, write. A story with fifty-four speaking parts. That's my advice to you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but it was it was. What's, what's the like golden zone there? Like, well, it's wh- not fifty-four. What's the ideal number. <laughs> the Breakfast Club is the ideal number because it's five, it's like five, plus a couple of antagonists. Uh, gotcha. But, um, plus, dad dropping them off in the m- yeah, in the beginning. you know. But really, it's it's a five-hander, sure. you know? Um, but but you know, it was an attempt to sort of tell all the stories of all these people. Uh, that happened in the course of one day in three different restaurants, a fine dining restaurant, uh, a, a corporate hell hole, which was canapes, which was uh, uh, modeled after Applebee's. And oh, then the, uh, canapes. The canapes, we had a, Amy LeVere wrote us a, uh, wrote a, um, a jingle for canapes for that. Nice. That's, yeah. And, uh, um, and then the dive bar where everybody hangs out at the end of the night, you know, um, And now I see The Bear, which we were trying to develop a series off of that, you know, 10 years ago. We were trying to develop a series off of that film. Really? Yeah. And now I see The Bear and it's like, well, this is what we were trying to do. (laughs) Because we dropped the, we dropped for the series pitches, we dropped the Applebee's because that's the most difficult to do, the most difficult to make it look believable. Yeah. You know, and it was, and we did okay with, you know, no money that we had, but, but, but anyways, I see the bear now, and I was like, "Yes, that's it." But we couldn't sell it, you know. But I was like, "Yes, that's what we were trying to do." Everybody.
0: What, what do you think changed in the industry that you know prevented you from being able to sell it, but now allows it to be made today? I don't know.
1: Somebody had a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> or a or a better agent. You know, a good agent than we had. Yeah. You know, that's that's probably what it was. Nowadays, you know, I I don't mean to be, and I am very cynical about the industry. And about the music industry too, but but you know I see like I used to be like oh my God Fleetwood Mac they're they must have been like the best band of the '70s and now I look at Fleetwood Mac and I'm like no they just had good lawyers.
0: Man, we sell so many Fleetwood Mac rumors at Shangri La to this day. It yeah, is, it is insane. <laughs>
1: like, and I have more of appreciation for that than I did you know back in the day when I was a very angry punk. I had yeah, I, but I have more much more appreciation for the songwriting now. But still, you know, they had good lawyers. That's why you still know about them. Do you remember
0: many, many years ago coming over to my apartment and recording a podcast interview with me that I think maybe never came out? No, it did. That was for Live from Memphis. Really? It did come out? Yeah, it did come out. I remember you telling me at one point, because I asked about it, and you said, like, we, you and, um, I forget. Kirk. Yeah, Kirk. Name. Yeah, yeah. We're we're surprised at how bitter and negative I was in the interview.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm fixing to uh, return the the, the favor with my bitter and negative interview.
0: (laughs) Did pardon me for not knowing this? Did you go to college for any of these? Yeah, I went. I have a
1: writing degree from Rhodes. I went to Rhodes with uh, Amy Coney Barrett. The uh, you know, and who was also an uh, a uh, um, English major. I had classes with her. And uh, uh, you know, it's like, look, mom. You know, you said an English major would never amount to anything, but you know, she's destroyed fundamental rights uh, for half the population. So, uh, you know, I guess she did come to something. <laughs> when when did you graduate from Rhodes? I graduated from 93 okay. Rhodes. I'm fifty two years old. All right, I'm which 44. is insane. Uh, but here we are. It's better that than dead. <laughs> when
0: did you start going to the antenna?
1: Oh, I got so I got to Rhodes in nineteen eighty nine. And the first time I went to the Antenna Club was would be in the fall of '89, and I was already a musician. I'd played in uh, a couple of bands in high school, but you know, listen, I was so and later on, now that when I learned about the Memphis scene, I was so envious about because what we did, what I was doing, we were like. I'm from rural East Tennessee. I'm from a place called, well, middle Tennessee. Uh, uh, McMinnville, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. and we w- I'm familiar. We would go to my earliest band. I was uh, I w- I would have to go o- over the mountain to uh, Chattanooga, and we played Chattanooga. Um, did you move to Memphis for Rhodes? Yeah, I did. I moved to Memphis for Rhodes. I almost went to Vanderbilt, and then uh, that didn't work out. Those are and two then, loft, lo- you know. I'm glad. Fancy schools. I'm so glad, though. That I ended up here. I had a friend talk. I had two friends, who really wanted, to like, sort of talked me into doing it. And I'm really glad that I ended up, you know, coming you, here to Memphis. Could you imagine the path of Nashville, Chris? <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad though. I, you know, Rhodes is a very strange place, and I know it gets a lot of bad press, and and these days especially. Um, but. It's uh, it's a really, really strange place. I met a lot of people who are my uh, who I'm still friends with to this day, which <laughs> is uh, which I have come to be thankful for because I know that a lot of people don't have that. And um, you know, but like half the place was was uh, spoiled rich kids, and half of it were people like me, scholarship kids who were, you know, this was their chance to get out of the small town, you know. And uh, I didn't really realize the class division back then. I, you know, most of my anxiety dreams are still happen still set at roads, mm-hmm. uh, to to this day, but, uh, I went
0: to a private high school and I still have anxiety dreams about that. So yeah, you I, get I can it. relate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You get it. Um, but I'm very glad that I, I'm very glad that I went as a friend of mine said, uh, who was there, the thing that they're most thankful for is that it taught us how to think, um, which is really a much more complex statement. I think than it. The more you think about it,
0: (laughs) at least if you know how to think (laughs) Yeah, most most people who say they, you know, who went to college, which I, I, I guess I went, but I didn't graduate. But most people describe it as a, you know, jumping through hoops process that allowed them permission access to something that they wanted to do yeah it taught you how to think that's tell me how to think that's, that's I, I, something a little you deeper. know the
1: thing that that was cool about about roads and we'll get off of this because uh, that to me the the thing the two things that really stuck with me were um there's a so, there's a course which is the core of the entire curriculum that's called search at the time it was called uh, search for values in light of western civilization mm. i think they've changed they've taken the western civilization part out now because they broadened it beyond just the classics but you would start we started with like beowulf and read and came up all the way up to like you know deconstructionism and we read all the primary uh um texts and we uh discussed them and i had but you would it was four semesters of that that you would that you had to do and i had like two semesters i had good teachers and two semesters i had bad teachers of that but uh Stuff that I that we learned in that that we just sort of glossed over or would mention in passing in those classes, you know, years later I would would just float to my the top of my head, you know, and and I, so I'm very I'm very grateful, you know, for that. And the other thing that was really the most valuable thing about roads for me, I mean, besides meeting all the people, really, uh, was this class. That I took in 1991, and it was called Global Change. And uh, James Hansen, who is a NASA scientist, who uh, Al Gore called before his committee in 1988, who who put the the term climate change into the public consciousness with that in that hearing. You know, that was three years after the James Hansen hearing, and we had two professors, a chemistry and a physics professor. And I remember the physics professor believed that anthropogenic global warming was a problem and was real and the chemistry guy did not. He was like, he did not think it was gonna be that the effects from the CO2 and the other, and the methane and all the other stuff that we were doing to the environment was not gonna be significant in the long run. And so these two people team taught a class and there were 20 of us in the class. And then at the end of the class, we took a vote, and like which one? And there were 19 said, "Yes, global warming is a problem," and one said, "No." And you were that one. I was. I was that one. (laughs) No, I I was not that one. But but it was it was really like it was very eye opening. And one of the things that was very eye opening about it was that we did um, really primitive modeling of climate modeling just and when we had this was on like an old the old max the old like you know one piece max yeah yeah very primitive stuff just like here's how the the variables flow and interact with each other and when you actually like set up like in the like one of the, the assignments was like make a stable climate with this simulator and you just couldn't do it it was almost impossible and then they would give you a stable climate simulation and they would be like throw a little more co2 in there see what happens and just to watch watch it all go and go haywire like that and then once it started to go haywire they would be like now try to get it back normal and it would be like you can't that was really really eye-opening i think for a lot of people who are in that class and sounds a
0: little terrifying it
1: is terrifying yeah but see i'm not surprised by any of this stuff this this last what we've been seeing here in memphis you know and people are a lot of people are like why oh why is the um why is the power going out so often now and the reason the power is going out so often is because it was this grid was not designed to perform in this climate it was the storms that we're seeing now, like the ones we just had, the derecho that just came through, like you know, yesterday, and yeah. and put a hundred and some odd thousand households out of power. Those things didn't happen twenty years ago. That twenty years ago, what happened yesterday would have been a, a fifty-year storm. Now it happens. It's happened like three times this year, and that's what the future looks like. Well, all right. <laughs> all right so we're done here yeah yeah i don't really see a reason to even bother with the rest of this honestly anyways i just uh i'm interested in a lot of different stuff (laughs) i read compulsively Hmm. uh which is also kind of a uh a good and bad thing because i'll read garbage just to be reading sometimes and uh once again in the social media era that's been a problem
0: (laughs) is is that the uh, medium that you absorb the most you read
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah yeah i do I do I get impatient with podcasts because I it I it's not fast enough for me to get the, the I can't absorb I can absorb the information faster when I'm reading. Some people listen to them on like double speed or whatever I hear.
0: Yeah. I can't. I'm not those people. I can't fathom <laughs> trying to do that. But I really like the downbeats like that one right there. <laughs> it's the rhythm. It's that makes it work. <laughs> Do you know what the secret to comedy? Oh, no, I just messed it up. (laughs) Do you know what the secret to timing? Yeah, I already messed it up. Skip it. Next joke. So I I was trying to get to, uh, you're in Rhodes. What, like, who tells you about the antenna? How do you find your way over there? Oh, my
1: God. That's what we were talking about. That's how we started. No, no. It's fine. No, some folks uh, who were older than me were going to, they were like, we're going to go to this club and see this Rhodes band. And I was like, "Well, I want to go because I want to be in a road band." And uh, we went to the antenna, and it was Neighborhood Texture Jam was oh, the band. Okay. And when I walked in, I will never forget my first the first time I saw the antenna, my first moments in the antenna was that Neighborhood Texture Jam was doing Torsos of Murdered People." Do <laughs> you know that song? <laughs>
0: Not. Not off the top of my head, but well, it, it sounds like a, a dandy.
1: It's a dandy, and uh, <laughs> they had uh, Greg, who was the like the texture guy, mm-hmm. uh, who was and Neighbor Texture damn for people who don't know were a band in. Uh, well, John Whittemore, who's a player in Memphis, he was one of them, and uh, who's all over the place now. Um, yeah, he's in, had,
0: he's in every hipster. You know, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> band
0: playing. Pedal he's the steel. pickup.
1: He's the pickup. He's the he's the guitar ringer for everybody. Is who totally. what he is. I mean,
0: he's on my record too. I have no. A, I have no reason to criticize.
1: No, we're not criticizing because he's he's a motherfucker, man. He is seriously just, and he can play anything, anything. But they were like, sort of pre, uh and this was the air, like sort of between the the initial, um, R.E.M. driven, R.E.M. and Cure driven, uh emergence of what we call alternative music now and then grunge. And it was sort of in that middle period there where like Jane's Addiction was happening yeah, yeah. too. And they were a hard rock band, but they also had like auxiliary percussion where they would just beat on crap. You know, like just like. And in this particular case, when I walked in, there were two 50-gallon oil drums on stage with a microphone down in one of them. And Greg, the percussionist, had gathered all the beer bottles from the night which were a lot, and were throwing them into the 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 uh, the drum and then they had like effects on the mic, so it would be like wah, 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 and I was like what the hell is this? I, like, I did not know that things like that existed in the world and I did not know that people would do them for entertainment. You know, I,
0: that makes me wish that I had been able to see NTJ at an earlier age. I even actually opened for them once in the late 90s but, mm-hmm. you know, they were a little more settled down by then. They them. were a lot more
1: settled down. Yeah. They were like, and, then, and, you know, they had videos. They, were, they, got reviewed, they got a five-star review in Rolling Stone. Yeah. They had music videos. They were big. But
0: My mom actually laid out their one of their 7-inches, the one of the Rush Limbaugh one. Rush Limbaugh
1: Evil Blimp. They yeah. were really they were on the My tip mom of did that the graphic too.
0: layout for that 7-inch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> a classic, a classic. They they got sued, they almost got sued by uh they got a cease and desist from McDonald's for the song McThorazine, uh which had Ronald McDonald on the cover. Uh but I I those guys How did were, MDC get away with <laughs> with Corporate Death Burger. It was, uh, um, but but it was really eye-opening and in the antenna then was sort of, it had been there for eight years at that point. Um, the The TVs, some of the TVs were working, but they were still playing music videos that I'd never seen before. Yeah. You know, and um, it was just a really, and I I then, I wanted to get back and play in that space and be hip like that. For a long time, and then I was in a cover band in. uh, Well, okay, so this was a completely different time as well. Uh, For you kiddies out there, um, God, I feel like fucking Ross Johnson. (laughs) So, like, I've got some Xanax. If (laughs) I don't actually, I'll just nod off. I'll just (laughs) nod off like Ross Johnson. That's what I'll do. Never go to a only man I've ever seen fall asleep behind the drum set. Oh my God. (laughs) I was in a pitch meeting and he passed out one time with him. Uh, he's a genius. The man's a genius. I, I love, love him it. to death. I love him like the father I never had. Seriously, but um, I love him more than my own father. <laughs> he uh, so whatever he uh, what um, I was in a so back then the cover band cover band and you can make money doing that a lot of money because you can now today too in the right circumstances. In fact.
0: Speaking of your employer, there's a lot of people on Facebook now currently all up in arms because the Memphis Flyer Best of Memphis music, you know, best band in Memphis category is all cover
1: bands. Oh, what the hell? Yeah. Well, see, that's but but that's what people are are nominating. That's what we always say, is like like you can you can vote a write in in that too if you want. But but you know, if you want to be nominated, <laughs> if you want to be on that, you know, get somebody to nominate you. I I I don't like that arrangement either. Uh, and we've had that conversation, but hey, look, it took, how long did it take to get the rappers like their own category? Mm. It, you know, it took years, yeah. years to get that done. Um, uh, but yeah, I believe that's a valid criticism. But I also believe that, you know, you should, we should separate it out. It, there should be a cover band category and there should be the a, like a band. original band category too, you know? Uh, but the wheels of journalism, they turn slowly. Mm. So, Indeed. Uh, but I do, I do. I respect that criticism, but if you want to see your band in that, in, in, nominated, nominate it. You know, I, that's another thing that I that I was like, you got to get out there, you got to do it. You know, how many
0: how many votes does it take to get nominated? Shoot, you man, figure?
1: I don't even know. I'll tell you, I will tell you that, uh, and I probably shouldn't back say. To
0: that. The, back when you guys had a podcast category, back to the light got nominated, but we didn't. We I don't think we we definitely didn't win, uh, but we did make the nomination round. And, um, but then you guys killed the podcast category,
1: which I don't agree with either, but we get, uh, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of votes that go through that. Yeah. It's, it's the biggest thing that the flyer does every year. I can imagine. Uh, cause people want to see their names in, in the paper. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they do. Yeah. Um, so anyways, you could make a lot of money as a cover band back then. And that's what I did through college. And I mean, like I, that was my job. Wow! Like, like, what was the name of it? It was called Nuclear Cafe, and we played. I mean, we would do four, five hour sets. You know, we would do, we would, we would go play frat parties and get paid like a thousand bucks in nineteen ninety money, which was a lot of money. Yeah. And um, like, uh, so that was my job. I didn't have to have a work study job. I was a, I went and played Brown eyed Girl. <laughs> you know, and we toured too. We did bass what, player. Yeah, I'm a bass player. I was a bass player. And, um, and then after that, so that's fun when you're like 19. That's great. It's the best thing ever. You're meeting girls all the time, you know, and you're going to crazy parties and you get to play, which is, of course, my thing. I just want to play all the time. And, um, uh, but then you get older and I, you know, when you're 23 it's not which we kept going because we were making money uh, it's just not so much fun if I never hear Brown Eye Girl again it'll be too soon I swear I can imagine so then I was in a band got, after that I was in a band with some other folks that I had was uh, that uh, with friends of mine from Rhodes and uh, and also Russ Thompson who I still play with now who yeah. was a CBU kid he's and, been a
0: guest on the show
1: yeah I, I love Russ noted like, author Noted author, thank you. Russ wrote a Choose Your Own Adventure book. Did he tell you that? No,
0: he hasn't. You know what I'm talking about, the Choose
1: Your Own Adventures? I'm
0: familiar with the the concept, yeah. Yeah,
1: like he wrote, like, oh my God, I I was like, this is the thing I envy you most about, Russ. I would love to, he was like, I can set you up with those people. And I was like, oh, well, I (laughs) whatever. You did it, I didn't, (laughs) you know. But uh, yeah, and Russ is seriously one of the best rock drummers in the city. And I, uh, and that's a high bar to clear in this town, too and uh we've been playing together since 94 uh and still play together in a thousand lights we're working on a new record right now that's cool and uh um yeah i've not love he's i love russ he's so talented and just the nicest nicest guy uh ever and uh Um, So we were in this band called Piss Horse together, and it. I remember Piss Horse. Yeah, it was an art punky thing. We played with the Grifters and Oblivians and Impala, and that scene that was sort of the transition between, like, sort of the end of Antenna and uh, uh, Barristers. I mean, we played. I saw the old one of the old barristers calendars, and like we played every two weeks at barristers <laughs> for yeah. a year at least, you know. And yeah. uh, I was I was in pretty good
0: with uh, I was actually in better with the James Manning era of barristers, which right, was a, which was later. a little later, yeah. But. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got my start around that same time, the tail end of the antenna. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in there earlier because I, when I was a kid, because my dad was a sound guy and he would drag me in there to, you know, I'm going to drop the speaker off or whatever. Mm-hmm. But setting that right, aside. Well, your dad was in
1: the modifiers too, well, so, which is another story. That's fine.
0: <laughs> Lots of people were in the modifiers. Lots of people. Hundreds, literally hundreds of people were in They the should modifiers. make one of those antenna shirts, but just for the it's modifiers like the, and list was, all the people on the back. was
1: in the modifiers. <laughs> John Dinsmore the hell uh so uh yeah and then that was we did that for a while and that was when the grifters and the oblivions were big and the grifters were like i mean people don't realize how big they were now you know like, oh yeah they like i mean you know they they taught that, that, by voices how to tour you know and i mean they were kind of like sister band with
0: pavement for a while too oh yeah yeah, you know and I mean they were getting the four five star whatever reviews and spin for crapping you negative yeah
1: and, and you, you know, know once I mentioned crapping you negative those those like those three or four records there uh, ain't my lookout too yeah which is a really underrated record are are you know untouchable they're impeccable to me when I would talk about
0: you know, the fact that I knew the grifters when I lived in Chicago that like, you know, if you mentioned, you know, the grifters around here, people are like,
1: oh, yeah, I'm who good cares. cares?
0: I don't even remember them. Yeah. But in Chicago, I would tell people I worked with at the shop that I knew some of those guys and they'd be like, oh, wow. You know, yeah. you know, when are they, are they, are they, I heard they were back together. Are they going to play Chicago? You know, <laughs> it was yeah. a totally different reaction. And I mean, it was cool to see, but it's also a little bit sad to note how underappreciated people tend to be, you know. When they're from Memphis, in Memphis,
1: yeah, you know the way I see. I mean, you're right. Yes, it's always been like that. Uh, th- I've always thought that it was because of Elvis that he's he spoiled. He set it for- the bar too high. Yeah, because I mean, like, look, I mean, honestly, like, <laughs> there are very few human beings in the history of humanity that were as famous as Elvis. We're talking like Pharaoh level, Ramesses the second, you know. Catherine Domenici, like yeah. level Hitler, uh, Hitler level <laughs> fame, Stalin. You know, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And uh, only one name, yeah. Elvis. Only one Hitler. Name. <laughs> You know exactly was who a you're Wasn't talking about. Was there an band called Elvis Hitler for a while? Oh, probably. I think there was. Probably. I remember that. Uh, maybe, actually, that might have been a Barish's band. Now that I think about it, I was also in the Diary of Anne Frank. Briefly, oh yeah, that was Chris Walker's band. That right? was Chris Walker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that became the New Intruders. uh Later, where we just did noise rock, which was so much fun. I used to tell my mom that we were, like, I'm, I've been to some New Intruder shows. they We had so it was. I'm really at the time it was just like because I got really burned out on music, and I know you know. And I think a lot of people who've been in the music scene can relate to this. I've been through it. That where you get to this point where you're like, I hate these people. I hate the politics. This is all stupid. And just the joy of playing is not worth putting up with looking at these assholes one more night. <laughs> and and then that lasts for me a few months. And then I'll be like, and then I get the itch. And, and and my wife, Laura Jean, is just like, you've got to play always. You have to be doing something always in music or you're going to go nuts. And, I, you know, that's true. But after Piss Horse, I did that. I got in that mode, I got a day job. I worked for a lawyer for a while. I was going to go to law school, uh, and then decided not to do that because I didn't like that either. Uh, and got into uh, writing. Worked for Towery Publishing for a while. Eric Oblivion worked there, too. That's what I, th- I I knew Eric from the clubs. But then, like, I actually worked with him for a while, and I was like, oh, you know, he was like a totally different guy, you know. Uh, and um, a lot of people worked at Towery. Uh, at the back then, and and uh, but we had tried to make movies. Yeah, I was going to ask at what point you you
0: you know caught the film bug.
1: Uh, I had a friend named Steve Stanley. Uh, I still have a friend named Steve Stanley, and we had met when we were in high school, and um, he was at Rhodes too. And we always were just huge film fans together, and we he and several other folks who where our classmates decided we wanted to make movies and this was the era of we were very inspired by Spike Lee um she's got to have it and do the right thing uh do the right thing was just like an atomic bomb in my mind when i when i saw that that film it was like i'd never seen anything like that uh, Steven Soderbergh, especially *Sex Lies and Videotape*, was a, was a big deal for us then. Uh, this is when Robert Rodriguez was doing uh, *El Mariachi* for six thousand uh, dollars. But these were all low budget stuff that was seemed achievable, and they were not about. And, and even though I had fallen in love with film in the first place, when in the golden age of, of 80s eighty sci-fi, uh, these were films about. I mean, these were stories about people, and not you know and. And characters, like, coming together and and sometimes breaking apart and being humans. And these stories were, and visuals as well, were just deeper and more interesting. And then, uh, so we tried to make uh, films, wrote my first screenplay in 93 after I got it. So my first job out of college, uh, while we were still doing the band, I was uh, I made industrial training films for about a year, Uh, and uh, so I got, sort of got the, like, gist of being a, uh, you know, I had to, like, research and then, like, make, you know, I did the, uh, (laughs) I did an industrial training film for the, for the uh, factory that made the McRib, uh, (laughs) like, regionally. (laughs) That was fun. That's cool. So you really got to see how the McRib... I got to see how the McRib was made. There were meat rakes involved. Sure. There was a giant vat, and they would throw sides of beef and pigs into it, and then they would, like... It was boiling water. I'm seriously. This vat was, like, as big as this room. And then there were guys around the edges who were like had these big rakes, and they would just tear the meat off of the, the carcasses as they, like, floated by. I put that in the movie. Mm. So, uh, and we wrote... Uh, I wrote a screenplay at that point in 93 was my first time I wrote a screenplay and we had $20,000 that we That was committed to the project and it never happened and I'm glad I'm glad that we didn't do that because uh, This was still in the film era and uh, Like we got quoted a hundred dollars a second for film processing Which was just out of this world, you know yeah. And the digital the digital revolution let's, let's make a note of that for
0: our video rates. Yeah, yeah. jeez <laughs> the, the
1: and that's just to process the film after you shot it right yeah and then um that's
0: to say nothing of editing it
1: or no, no, treating no, that, it or not. no 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 whatever. that's just to get the film to edit right right and not and making a work print after that making multiple work prints and this stuff that's a whole other that's Ugh. that would be like even more so we it was cost prohibitive because of the medium because of film it, it, you cannot Overestimate the the digital revolution. uh, It democratized the the form, and then uh, then you know did was still in music and was doing all that, and then later on, about ninety eight is when a celebration came out, which was the first digital film uh, that was made. It was a Dogma ninety five project, and it was the first film that was made on like consumer level. Um. A prosumer is what they called it consumer level video and and edited on a desktop and uh like computer and uh and then the Blair Witch Project was 99 which was the same thing
0: yeah I remember saw that in the theater
1: uh, but and then around that time so we we I was still friend, hanging out with was with these folks with those folks we're still friends and we still wanted to make movies, and we heard that there was a di- and we heard about the digital revolution. And you know what? This is going to sound stupid, but Play School, the you know the the company, they made a digital camera in the late '90s that was like one of the best digital cameras on the market. And we we bought a Play School camera to, to mess with, just to learn digital video. And then we heard that there was this dude making. A, a digital movie in Memphis, and also Mike McCarthy. We knew Mike McCarthy. I was at the premiere of Mike McCarthy's first movie, and when he was a producer, it's this film called Garotica. It opens with an extended sequence of a, uh, a a girl giving herself cunnilingus with a skull, and I had a first date that I took to that movie, which was fun. Yeah, we actually ended up dating for a while after that, and then uh, so we knew Mike's stuff, and Mike, but Mike's the stuff he did in the '90s was all on film. And we heard there was a dude that was doing digital film, a digital movie in Memphis. And uh, Steve went and sought him out. And it was Craig Brewer. And Craig, not just to us. And I've talked to Craig about this. And he doesn't really remember this. But we remembered it. You know, because it made such a big impression on us. But he just did that for everybody that would ask. He would be like, yeah, I'm making a digital movie. This is how you do it. This is the film. You, you know, this is the camera that you get. This is the the software I'm using. This is the, the specs in the computer. You know, this is how you record sound. Like he would he just told everybody how to do it. And that really started the digital, well, you know, the, the modern indie film Uh, scene in Memphis that it started with him and I think and and the film scene has been a lot more cooperative and a lot more like you know uh, uh, than the music scene
0: I was about to ask
1: yeah it was it has been traditionally and but I I do honestly believe that a lot of that comes from that that moment where it was like Craig Brewer and and uh, John Pickle you know were both had had sort of crack the, the code to, to understand how to make digital film and but they were all very cooperative and very helpful with everybody and then people would go and pitch on you know and we would and not to say that we weren't that we weren't competitive but we were but it was a much more healthy kind of competitive than the music scene was back then and let me just say too that i believe i've, I've been trashing the memphis music scene <laughs> but i believe now it's much healthier than it used to be As far as that goes? That's because
0: the the younger generation doesn't do the hyper-competitive bullshit that, like, our generation does. Right,
1: that we were completely, like... That
0: we were raised in and subjected to and was thrust upon us. Yeah, well, they're better than we are. Yeah. So... (laughs) Well, I mean, honestly, I think that they just, you know, they came up to it and and were like, why... (laughs) They look at it with fresh eyes. Like, why does this system of, you know, hazing and competition and... And they're right. You know, ill will. Why does this exist? Why does this need to exist?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They don't care about the bucket of crabs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But they're right. So, kids, I love you. Keep doing it. (laughs) I found the
0: same thing to be true in the wrestling business, honestly. When I first started mixing it up with local wrestlers, uh, I was kind of shocked at how collaborative and supportive and nurturing the locker room was compared to my experience with, you know, my Memphis music buddies. Mm-hmm.
1: supposed mm-hmm. but it's better now it's a lot better than it used to be yeah <laughs> so and i love it i still love it and i still want to play and you know i uh and i'm gonna keep doing it until they make me stop
0: <laughs> where uh you said thousand lights was in the studio working on a new record where are y'all we're working doing on that?
1: a new record we're over uh at the well i can't tell you actually where we are i won't i'm not gonna say it here you can't tell well, I'm not going to say it on, long. I'll tell you, okay. but I'm, not, I'm gonna tell you off the record, Okay. but, but um, uh, yeah, we're working on a new album, we've actually been jamming, uh, I, I wanted to take a new approach, um, and so what we did was, well, so when this band first got together, uh, it was me and Russ Thompson and uh, Joey Killensworth. And uh, we, and Harry Kondasychics was involved for a while, and we were called Static Bombs at that point. Okay, I I remember. I didn't realize that, I guess I
0: didn't make the connection.
1: Well, and then Harry had so much, Harry and and Joey's styles, working styles were different. And, and, you know, Harry's got so many iron to fire. Anyways, so he drifted off, and then we were kind of looking for another singer, and uh, we did a, um, uh, we did a Stooges tribute. Uh, at Black Lodge Halloween one year, they uh, uh, which is a, just a long story. We did a Steeleye Tribute. We did all of Funhouse. That's what we did, and that was something that Piss Horse used to do. And then uh, we had a gig. At, uh, we had a gig lined up for Halloween for Superwitch, which was me and Joey and Eldorado Del Rey and John Pickle. Uh, and then that band broke up. But but Matt was like, well, you, you can still play and i was like well i got a gig but i don't have a band so i was like well hey Russ, let's do that let's do that funhouse thing it's halloween we'll wear a musical costume and will be fun and uh we got we convinced jesse james davis to come on and sing there which i AKA met A.K.A. yesi yavis jesse yavis yeah uh and and uh because we'd met at the david bowie tribute uh and i just thought he's an amazing voice and an incredible like magnetic stage presence and uh so we did that and then we had so much fun doing that we were like we, we were like oh here's some songs that we had worked up you know and do you like and then jesse put words and melody on them and uh and then those are the songs that everybody likes from uh, from a thousand lights. Is the ones that we we do collaboratively that we that we that we did that we put together collaboratively because we'd also will do like somebody will can bring a song in and we'll arrange it for the band, right? But the ones that we did collaboratively are the ones that we get the best feedback for. So I that's cool. Yeah, I mean it's cool, and 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 this is something that if you can do as a band, it's great, but it's really delicate process, and you've got to have people everybody in the band has to be egoless to some point, or at least like willing to accept other people's ideas, which is difficult for a lot of people to do. Can be very, yeah, it can be difficult. And uh, so we, uh, uh, so I was like, okay, let's try to formalize that process, you know, that we sort of stumbled into. And, um, and so we've been jamming since January, uh and weekly uh, with the three of us, me and Russ and Joey, and we have 39 songs that we did that we came up with in jam sessions and then we took those down to about 25 we dropped we went sat down and listened to everything and we took those down to about 25 and now we're going back and doing second round demos on stuff uh, just to be like because some of it was like uh, you know part of it is like, Do we still like the song? And part of it is, do we remember how to do this? Or were we just like really stoned that night? And it just happened. Sure. You know, can we actually execute this as a song? Or is this just a jam that we can't reproduce? Which happens. You know. and, and there's nothing wrong with putting out the thing you can't reproduce. Yeah, <laughs> on a record, just, right? Yeah, except that, that that stuff was like recorded on my iPhone. Sure. So now we're doing sure. a set. We we've done a second round of demos, and now we're going to get Jesse in, and he's going to write melodies for all that stuff. Oh, that's cool. So I wanted to like, because as an artist, when I as a, the older I get as an artist, the more experience I have. Like I've I put especially, and this comes from filmmaking. I put a lot of emphasis on the process, put a good process in place and you don't have to worry about what comes out the other end. Just like, let it go. Just, just let it go through. And, uh, so that's solid advice. That's the approach that we're, but, but the caveat is you got to design a good process, right? And so that's what we're doing right now. And it's been weird for everybody, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with where the with where the uh with the material so far. I mean like I was like I want to make like London Calling, you know. I want to make a big ass double album. We got the material. It's just a question of getting everybody together. But we're all grown-ups. We've all got lives. We're all getting pulled in 50 different directions.
0: Other projects. Uh, other sure. projects.
1: I mean Russ is in almost as in many bands as as Joey is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what? It's it's a bit of a musical
0: odd couple. I mean, maybe not you and Russ, but uh, you know, with with Jesse and uh, Joey's more of like a hard rock metal guy. Right. Yeah. You know, so what do you think makes the like disparate gr- grouping like what makes it work?
1: Well, you're only as good as your drummer. That's so right. so Russ makes 1000%. It work. Um, shout out Russ, shout yeah. out. Shout out Bubba too. Uh, solid rock drummers. Right. Uh, and Joey is a very versatile musician and his daddy was a guitar player and he's, uh, uh, his stuff that he does naturally in Josephus and the George Jonestown massacre, uh, is, you know, heavy stoner rock and, and, uh, but, but he can play, you know, he said the reason he wanted to play with us is that he wanted to do like, like Bauhaus and Joy Division and mm-hmm. he didn't have anybody else that wanted to do that stuff. So he, so... It's interesting he, you know but he he has a lot joey is a very very deep talent and he can do anything the other the thing with joey is though uh joey is a blunt instrument that you like uh as a director because i also like think as a director too, like everything and i always like don't let me use my director voice on you because it's, it's rude to do that unless you're actually like i actually am the director yeah but but the joey is like you, you can't tell Joey what to do. You, you show Joey where you want him to do it, and he does it. <laughs> does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's not a criticism. That's not a criticism at all, because what he does is incredible. It's just like that's his style. you know. The, and, and you just have to – and once again, if you're going to make a collaborative, if you're going to do collaborative work like this, you have to understand how everybody's style is, and you have to get people who can work together like that. I'm sure it's also helpful because we're all older and we all have, we all have more patience now, too. Uh, but it's, it's love, I love playing with those guys uh, so much. And then Jesse, uh, Jesse James Davis, seriously, the best front man I've ever played with. Uh, his, his voice is incredible. He's got just magnetic stage presence. Uh, always, always. And um, I just, Anyways, I'm super lucky. I'm super lucky to be playing with these guys, and uh, you know, I'm just a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bass player by personality. The whole Derek Smalls thing and Spinal Tap—that's me. You know, like lukewarm water. I'm lukewarm. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's what I do. I try to. And and uh, you know, when you're a film director, I I firmly believe that director, film directors, number one talent is identifying a whole bunch of people that would be work that would work well together. And getting them in together and letting them do their thing.
0: Wow, you know, maybe I should get into film directing then because I've always thought a skill of mine was recognizing people's gifts and give it a shot, man, and assigning people thusly.
1: Yeah, give it a shot. Uh, you know, you can do it. Like I said, the form has been has been radically democratized. So, <laughs> you know, it,
0: and we and we we have a camera. You by have God. a camera.
1: Do it. You know, give it a shot, man. <laughs> Why not? You know. I almost hesitate to
0: bring this up, but I don't think Joey likes me very much.
1: Oh, I have no, I have no information on that. Cool. We can move on. I really don't. I have no idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've heard, I've heard from someone that he doesn't like me very much. And I understand why. Uh, Because I gave probably a a mediocre review to a George, uh, Josephus, Uh, Josephus record (laughs) when I was, uh, when I was writing for the flyer. And that leads me to something I actually want to ask you about. Sure. Is, did you, do you ever feel like covering a scene that you participate in muddies the water for you? Yeah. Because it's 1,000% did for me, and that's why I got out of it. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do. How do you, how do you deal with it?
1: Uh, I, ha- I recuse myself. From stuff that I'm involved with, uh, it gets awkward. Well, I feel like that should just go without saying, but yeah, I have yeah. seen other writers
0: for certain publications just straight up cover their own band's no. shows. And that, when I saw that, my, you know, if you could have seen the temp- JD temperature gauge
1: and <laughs> <laughs> then exploding through the top of my head. It is, it's tough. It's tough. And in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to do that. But we we live in this fallen late stage capitalism where we got to do what we got to do, and um, but, but I, I recuse myself. But, from, e- but even when you're like
0: writing about your peers,
1: yeah, you don't feel like that complicates things. It does. It does complicate things a lot, and and I um, I pay attention to it. I does it ever affect what you write? Yeah,
0: it does because I will. You have to pull some of those punches don't you i I've, i pulled many punches
1: yeah but it's more complicated than that yeah it's like it's well that's one of the reasons honestly that i don't like to write music criticism anymore um is just i don't know i don't mind trashing a movie that's bad but i feel Cause there's lots of people to blame for one right and uh but i don't want to try i don't know it just feels icky to me trashing a record that's bad and
0: you know i don't even feel like i never i mean i hated some of the records i reviewed but i ended up giving them you know higher grades than i would have in real life if i didn't know them i never trashed you know anyone i always tried to say at least something good about someone but it was tough for me to you know even like people would respond negatively if i gave even like a you know a mediocre review I may as well have given an F. You know, a B- minus may as well be an F to some of these people.
1: And I, Yeah, I know. And, 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 you know, wait till the DC fanboys get a hold of you. Ugh. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't even. At, at
0: least most of the bands I wrote about didn't have any fans. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, uh, I, like I said, I will recuse myself from things that I'm too involved with. Um, I will a lot of times uh if I have an involvement with a well so like for example, I you remember the invaders documentary that uh Pritchard Smith and uh 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 jB uh did Horrell did a few years ago I don't actually I must have been in
0: Chicago yeah, I
1: think you were yeah because it just it just got released last finally got released last year and we went so i did I worked on that movie for about a week. And I basically, when they were trying to, um, Craig Brewer was one of the executive producers and he got me on uh, to do to basically write the voiceover and also help structurally, because that was right after we'd done Antenna. And uh, they needed help w- with the structure. Structure, for all you folks out there who've never done this before, is a fancy word for the order that shit happens in.
0: Yep. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, it's the arranging. It's if the you arranging. Wanna, if you want to make a musical comparison, right?
1: Yeah, it's the arranging, uh, and so I re- I rewrote their voiceover, and then we worked with the edit for a little while, and then moved on, and then they worked for months and months after after I worked on it. But I've written about that movie several times, but I always have to say, and then when I watched that film, when we watched the completed film, like that, my the voiceover that I did for them, that went through three or four revisions. So some of my words are still in there, but but most of them are different or, you know. Uh, so I've written about that film, but I always say, I make a point of saying- Full disclosure. I, full disclosure, I worked on this film for a little bit, but I do not profit financially from it if it does well or if it does badly. That does, you know, something that I would, you know, and I have a production company, my wife and I co-own Oddly Boyant Productions. And- um, I'll, I'll have to. I'll, you know for Indie Memphis. Uh, my wife Laura Jean Hawking is a is a, an editor, and she's like this year she's going to have probably three features that she edited that are going to be at in Indie Memphis. Wow. Yeah, and so but it's like I, I submitted my new music video can, to Indie Memphis, and oh. I'm sure we'll see it. Huh. I love the music video category there too. Yeah, but but yeah, just to answer your question, yeah, it's complicated, um, but. Uh I, I don't necessarily believe in the traditional journalistic objectivity like it used to be presented. Uh, but I do believe very strongly because I've done this forever, for a long I've done it forever. I've done it for a long time, is you I don't think you can be true objectivity literally doesn't exist because that but you can and should, as a journalist do your best to to be as objective as possible and there are standards and there's stuff that they teach you in journalism school to follow uh so nobody's perfect you know out of the crooked timber of man no straight thing was ever made but just do you just do your best that's the best you can do is just try and see it and and seeing things from other trying to put yourself in other people's shoes and seeing things from other perspectives is what art does best and it's what writing does best too and the more practice you have at that the better you get at it i think uh but nobody's perfect you just do the best you can and then it's up to the audience i feel like to find people that they trust find people that they believe can be as objective as you can you know and uh but you just do the best you can
0: i just looked at the time and I know we've kept you a while already, and it's cool. We can keep going. There's one subject that we have to broach. Okay, and that is the. I guess I want to talk about the making of the antenna documentary, of course, but I also want to know what's up with it now because I know people sure. still want to see it. I'm sure people still ask you
1: all the time. I, I wonder, are we going to be able to buy it on I want Blu-ray, to see DVD, it whatever? More than anything, you don't even understand. So let's let's talk about it. Well, I uh, after I got laid off. Uh, from the magazine I told you about, when I was a freelancer, I got... I had I had said for a long time that there were three movies about Memphis that needed to be made that had not been made. And one of them was the Sanitation Workers' Strike movie of 68, which there was at the River I Stand and all that stuff. But, I mean, like, a fictionalized account of that, you yeah. know. Uh, which Greg Brewer wrote. It's a movie called 4-4 Four Four that he tried to sell forever. Uh, and... The other one was The Big Star Story, uh, which was uh, ended up being with, you know, uh, Nothing Can Hurt Me is the name of the record, yep. is that one? And the third one was The Antenna Story, and I got an opportunity with Ross Johnson, uh, and this guy named John Floyd, who was a music writer in Memphis and had some money, uh, came to me uh, when I didn't have a job, and said, because they had seen my films, and wanted to know if I wanted to do this because Ross had been trying to sell it as a book and hmm. uh, yeah, I still want to read the book. Yeah. Uh, but his literary An agent, oral history of the antenna. Oh yeah. By Ross Johnson. Uh, seriously. Uh, and
0: just oral history and Ross in the same. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty fun.
1: Um, and they had, uh, so the, the literary agent was like, they tried to sell his book. And the lure agent was like, you should make a movie because people don't know what this music sounds like. So you want to like, let them hear the music. Yeah. And I was like, well, a book and CD package would have been tight. Yeah. Book, CD package, mo- like the whole thing, which yeah. is we had that, but don't, but whatever. Um, we digress. We digress. Well, I get ahead of myself. Um, and I said, uh, this is a movie that's been needed to be made for a long time because it's a bit of Memphis music history Memphis music history as it's told stops in 75 when stacks disintegrates uh, but uh, and and at that point the industry either went to Nashville or LA if you industry uh, but the musicians were still here the industry left the musicians were still here the tradition the musical traditions were still here and the the scene was still here um, and that's kind of what the end there were did it really split into two at that point because there was what was going on at the antenna which was the punk revolution and the alternative uh you know punk new wave and alternative and then uh there was what became memphis rap too which started off i guess really in the roller derby uh not roller derby what, the roller boogie stuff yeah, yeah and then like uh as hip-hop got here
0: would have been cool yeah. if it started in the roller derby.
1: It, well, yeah, <laughs> that would have been cool. Roller boogie. Uh, but so I was so I was like, yeah, this is a story that really needs to be told. And um, and the thing about the antenna was it gave us a a set period and a sort of geographical location to work around. Uh, and I've always said that the antenna antenna is a cultural documentary disguised as a music documentary. Really, it's about the people that were there and the evolution of the of that scene and the way that the uh, that that interacted with the larger culture over time. The real story of punk rock is not Sex Pistols, The Clash, and Blondie. It's all a thousand little bands that happened all over the world when they heard that music and said, I can do that too. That's what punk is valuable. And that's what, and and what the antenna did ultimately was rebuild this culture of original music that Memphis had had. In the past, and really, you know, people think of that as a golden age. But you know, I'm sure you know for a long time, like they would, they, like everybody went and played in West Memphis because you couldn't get, they wouldn't let people play R&B in Memphis, basically. They, you know, so so a lot of like the stacks people would like gig in West Memphis and come across the bridge and like and like record all night, you know. Um. So, but but no place there was, and I've always said that the. The plot of Antenna is simple. There was no place to play. There was a place to play. There was no place to play. What feels like plot movement in that film is you listen to the evolution of the music. And you can hear it. And that was one of the things that we really wanted to do was select the songs and so that you could hear how each era influenced the next era. You know and there was a lot of evolution uh, you know our film goes from January of 1978 when the Sex Pistols played on Union Avenue at the Tallison Ballroom which is where the the Taco Bell is now uh, the Sex Pistols Taco Bell I've been trying to get them to uh, my big still idea. still something is, of a tourist destination for it those is. who know it is I want to yeah. do like a mural there needs to be a mural on the wall or at least there. one of
0: those uh, marker things that someone would probably steal
1: well, well we'll talk about that later <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get to the marker. And then, um, so they came to me one, and I said, I would love to do this film, uh, because it needs to be told. It's a story that needs to be told. Uh, but I'm not going to do a story that's just talking heads with a bunch of middle-aged guys telling everybody how much cooler it was when they were young. Cause I don't want to watch that movie and I sure as hell don't want to make it. And I had been, I'd hung out at the antenna from 89 to 95. And, um, I never saw anybody with a camera in there. I never saw anybody with a still camera or a video camera or doing any recording in there. I never saw anybody.
0: Bob and- swears that someone videotaped a modifier set in there at one point, but uh, he also swears that the set was then later taped over.
1: Oh, well, we got some of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's right. There was there, uh, yeah. I mean, he means
0: like a fully produced, like multi-camera, crazy thing. I know that you guys had some. We like, had, campcorder. yeah, we had a lot of, we yeah, had yeah. a lot of
1: stuff. Yeah, um, we ended up with over a hundred hours of archival footage, mm. um, and we did eighty-eight interviews, some of which were three hours long. Bob Bob Holmes' interview was three hours long. Th- with I was you. I was in on that. Yeah, yeah, you made that happen, and that made the that. I can't thank you enough for that. That made a big chunk of the movie. Well. Thank, thanks for including, Bob. I mean, you know, I
0: I recently went to the Pink Palace, or I guess it's called the Museum of Science and History now, but well, formerly the is- Pink
1: Palace. Hey, Pink Palace people, change your freaking name back, okay? Stupid idea. The, the Stupid. big sign
0: that says Mosh is ridiculous.
1: It's ridiculous. Uh, but anyway. And fire whoever's idea that was, because they're bad. There's a little section where they talk about, like,
0: the, the, the roots of Memphis punk rock, and they mention three bands, the clits. The modifiers and uh, Panther Burns. Mm, yeah. And
1: I think that's accurate.
0: And I I wish I just wish Bob was alive to see that. Yeah. Because, I mean, when I told him that you wanted to interview him for the documentary, he almost didn't believe it. You know, <laughs> he has such a low opinion of himself and a low opinion of the modifiers legacy that, you know, he it took a lot of convincing to even get him out. the Oh, door.
1: yeah. It went months. It took us months to get him there, and and, and you Steve know. loved him. Steve McGee, the the club owner, loved Bob more than anybody, and he was the one that he worked on Bob. You both of you guys, until yeah. he agreed to to be on it. But he's great. That interview was incredible, and um, I'm so glad that we were able to to get that story in there. So we worked we worked on antenna for about three years. Um, we uh laura and i edited for 18 months seven days a week we took a fourth of july weekend off in the middle of that that was the only time we took off while we both had jobs too uh and um i know i poured myself into that film like i've never poured myself into any other project ever in my life and um i'm extraordinarily proud of how it came out um I, I really am it's uh, and I'm sorry that you can't everybody can't go to Netflix and watch it uh it, it's that's been the worst thing one of the worst things that's ever happened to me in my life um, it, it's just hard it's still hard for me to i I well I'll tell you we did the 10th anniversary last year at indie Memphis and then before that, before the pandemic when they did the, the marker, um, when they did the marker, we had a free screening at black lodge. And I remember at the time it was the biggest event that black lodge had ever had. And I felt like, and when I was going to that screening, I, I told Laura, I felt like I was being driven to the gallows. Uh, but I got the movie back that night because people cried and they, they did just, I saw what that movie can do to an audience. And, um, I got the movie back that night because I was really angry and upset and bitter about what everything that had happened with the film.
0: And I honestly, I don't even really know like what you're referencing, you know, like, I mean, I've, I've, I know that you've, you've said to me that part of the reason why the film couldn't be released on DVD or whatever was because of music licensing issues.
1: Yeah, it's music licensing. So there's a lot more, well, so the, Here's what's going on with the film. There's 50 songs in the movie. Okay? Uh, and we did not have the, the enough money to pay for the music rights. And John Floyd, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do this. I've been quiet about this long enough in public. John Floyd is one of the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, his job was to be... Uh, well, okay, so... John Floyd's one of the producers. Ross Johnson's one of the producers. Uh, Steve McGee's technically one of the producers uh, as well. Uh, his job was basically to get everybody together. Steve still knows everybody. Everybody still loves Steve, most of them. The ones who aren't assholes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> still love Steve. And he was able to find people and get people together that we would have never been able to find. Bob being one of them, but not the only one. Yeah. Uh, John Floyd's job was, to, was music supervisor and none of them had ever done these jobs before but i thought because i am a self-taught filmmaker that and they were so enthusiastic in the beginning and they had brought their money into it in the beginning that i was like well i'm self-taught they can teach themselves to do this and i and when we first got together to do it i was like we can do this film on the cheap but music rights are going to eat us up uh so we have to be proactive, and we have to make the deals as we are contacting people, as we're going to. And that was supposed to be John Floyd's job. And John Floyd is a bitter alcoholic, and he thought that being a music, produ- music supervisor for a film just meant I get to pick songs. So he gave us a list of 200 songs that had to be in the movie. <laughs> How long of a movie did he think it was going to be? I don't know. I don't. But, we, but I, over and over, I explained to him, we can't do this. We can't do it like that. And also, and so the music rights in a film are very complicated. Um, stupidly. So, uh, it's, it's a bad system, uh, that has evolved to benefit all the worst people and, uh, and not the, not the artists. Yeah. Not and the filmmakers, not, not the, the filmmakers. musicians. No, no, not the, none of them. No. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, we had me and John Floyd at one point had a falling out that is that was pretty awful, and I won't get into it. Uh, I knew he had left the project towards the end. Or yeah, yeah. I I won't go into all the details of that, but it was it was really bad. And so we it was just us to carry on at the end there, and um, we weren't speaking anymore. We were speaking through Ross, and raw and. When we had, so we locked picture. We had the list of the songs that were in the film. And I sent to finalize that list through. And of course, and just let me, as a side thing, he would, John Floyd would get angry when we would cut a a song from his list, but we didn't have film of anybody doing the song. So we couldn't put it in the movie. (laughs) right yeah he wanted to put in rem demos and it's like and we actually talked to the rem people about those demos and they were like we have no idea what you're talking about and i'm like well we can't just stick that demo in and try to skate by because that's fucking warner brothers they will they will burn us to the ground and not notice (laughs) they did it
0: they eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast
1: right yeah (laughs) and i'll tell you one thing i've learned is that they will not work with you (laughs) they will not you go I'm a low budget we're tiny little they got one price they don't care yeah they don't care about you at all uh and uh so when when we locked picture we sent it to SoundMix, and I sent and I sent word to John through Ross and Steve and I was like here's here's what made the final cut and uh where are we at and he was like I haven't done anything and this is two and a half years. He hadn't talked to anybody. He hadn't contacted me. He hadn't done, he hadn't done nothing. Hmm. So, and we didn't have any money. And we had raised some money through Kickstarter. Uh, and the amount of money that we needed was about 10 times more than we raised in Kickstarter. So I didn't want to go back to Kickstarter and, ask, and beg for the music rights. Because also I figured we'd be, we'd be cannibalizing our audience. So we'd be asking people to pay to finish the film and then ask them to pay to see the film too. So I didn't want to do that. And also it's, it's based, it's, it's not, it's a lot of money, but it's, it's not a prohibitive amount of money. And it's an amount of money that one person could write a check for. And if they were the right person and,
0: uh, if anyone's listening,
1: yeah, call me. And, um, so we go to the, just, oh man, I just
0: get, I can tell you're getting a little worked up just recounting this. Well, I'm
1: trying to stay calm. Uh, but, uh, so we get to the premiere and we went into Memphis. Uh, we, we had a really great festival run. Uh, at that point I was like, here, I, I got festival rights, quote unquote, from people, which is basically, which is not really a legal thing. It's a, don't sue me. I'm going to take this around to festivals and then see if I can find a real investor, a real investor, because it's like, this is because, okay, you think about it, it's a bad pitch. Okay. It's a, and it doesn't seem like a bad pitch to us because we know what it is, but you take it to somebody and they're like, I'm going to, have this movie about, it's going to teach people about all this great music that they that they missed, but it is great. And that is this whole, an entire city's worth of, of you know, punk, new wave, alternative music for 15 years and and not just any city, Memphis, one of the greatest musical cities on the planet. And what producers hear is, oh, you're making a movie about music nobody knows about, so I'm not gonna be able to sell this movie because nobody knows about it. Hmm.
0: You'd especially think in a climate where, I mean, there are, you know, similar punk rock scene documentaries out about Chicago. Yep. Some of my
1: former the co-workers. The Club in, in D.C. has one. Little Rock has Little one. Little Rock has one. We knew we talked to those guys. Memphis is is almost, you know, the whole first part of the Little Rock,
0: punk yeah. rock documentary covers the connection between Memphis and Little Rock. Yeah,
1: we got some footage from them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... They talk about mes- Metro Waste a good bit in that one. Right. They talk about several
1: noteworthy Memphis punk bands. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... When I went around. We we had a really good festival run. We won a bunch of awards. Um, I I had literally at the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. I had this dude walk up after, right after the film was over. Said I'm a buyer for uh, BBC Dutch Public Television, German, uh, and I've Public Television, and I've got like people in Italy and all over Europe. Yeah, it seems like the perfect right because they love the you know you might. Folks might not know this, but Europeans love me- Memphis music more than Memphians do. Oh, yeah. You know, Lorette would told us, Lorette Velvet told us that they would play in Memphis and it would, they would play the antenna and, and nobody would show up. And then they would go to Europe and they would be literal rock stars in Europe, you know. Uh, but it, it still is to, the, to this day. It's still like that. And... Um, so I was like, that's perfect for us. He's like, I know. It's like, it was an amazing movie. I loved it. He was like, this is perfect. I want to buy it. What's your, what's your music rights situation? And I said, well, we're working on it. And he turned around and walked off. So that what distributors want is an insurance bond, and an Arizona Missions insurance bond, which says if somebody comes and tries to sue us, then it's on you and the insurance company's going to get it. But you that And they won't work with you. They won't give you any money. Ahead of time, nothing. They, and especially for, for a project like this. Wow. It's crazy. That he, it's that,
0: crazy. That dude just turned around. I, I can picture that moment. Oh, yeah. Having been at a few South by Southwest's and had a few of those post-set conversations with the guy with the business card. Yeah. I can, I can almost picture the exact scene and the dude just ghosting you mid-conversation. Go- yeah,
1: just walked off. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's Painful. happened over and over again. Yeah. It's, it's been going on for 10 years. And I've had the same conversation over and over again, the same pitch over and over again. I yeah. talked to Netflix, Amazon. That I, I've had like investors walk right up to the to the altar and then you know leave me standing there with the wedding ring. I've had you know over uh. and over and over again. I I go, I go into meetings and I'm like, I, I, and it's really hard. It's really hard because you got to go in these meetings like. I'm bowed up. I'm telling my story. I'm enthusiastic. I have all the details. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nothing's you know, wrong. Nothing's wrong. Everything's great. But <laughs> Those I could literally rainbows here, people. But I could literally do both sides of the meeting at this point. <laughs> I could, I could do your part, and I can do my part, and this is how it's going to come out. Yeah. But you still got to show up looking like you know, and you got to get that hope out uh, uh, no, somewhere. You got to think it's already sold. You got to think, think it's sold, right? Yeah. I but over and over and over again, this has happened to me, and I'll tell you. Uh, so. It's you know the worst. It's it's some of if not the best work I've ever done in my career. I'm extremely proud of it, and nobody can see it or I get sued. And well, I can't take money for it, <laughs> or I can get sued. Can't put it on YouTube. It would it would get yanked down in the ma- a matter of a week, and then we'd get letters immediately. Um, wow. And it's not just and people are like oh those greedy those greedy musicians, they should just give you those songs. No. No. Because this is a film about how those people never got paid, and those people never got the recognition they deserve. And I'm not going to be the guy that screws them over again. You know? I mean, I understand the logic of like, oh, if we put it out there, maybe
0: everybody starts doing big, big business because of the success of this documentary. Maybe, you know, everybody could waive or reduce their fee just for the spirit of whatever. But I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Not, not wanting to shortchange the subjects of your film.
1: Right. <laughs> Don't want to shortchange the subjects of your film. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. And I will tell you, and there's, I'm not going to name any names, but- but for a long time, there were people and there were rumors. And went, well, okay, maybe this is something positive that can come out of this of, out of this podcast. Sure, not that nothing positive. I, I love you, and I love. Thank you for being here. This has been a very positive experience. <laughs> maybe that this can be helped. So I there have been a lot of rumors about people who were oh, it's their fault, or they were greedy, or blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. No, that's all bullshit. That's all bullshit. Nobody has asked us for an uh, for a. a prohibitive amount of money or for amount of per song or for amount of money that i thought they did not deserve nobody has done that the problem has been us has been uh, raising funds that's the problem okay so to put in the record everybody uh, put that on the record everybody out there that the artist It's not the band's fault it's not the band's
0: fault it's not the artist's fault can i'm just curious 50 songs can you give me any idea of what that number is? Like that, you need to get um, even just a
1: ballpark. It's less than a hundred grand. <laughs>
0: hmm.
1: It see, it's not like I'm saying. It's you know, I, I talk to people who are in the real documentary world, and they're just like that's nothing. But I
0: can't get. Also, everybody who I wonder what the, like in the case of the Little Rock documentary, just as an example, I wonder what they did. Like if they paid everybody or if they. You know,
1: I, I don't, you know, and we've, we've explored revenue sharing models as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably, which is the operative model right now that we're work that uh, we're working with, but we still can't do it for free. And listen, man, I'm $20,000 in debt because of this movie Damn. that we've been carrying credit card debt f- for 10 years, trying, you know, trying to pay it off that we ran up making that, this film. And this pretty. was supposed to be a job yeah. that I got paid for. Okay. I don't have any more money to put into it. I've mm. given I've given everything I got, on this. Uh, I think the Little Rock people had had some money on their own. Yeah, uh, that's that's my understanding, um, which is great. More power to you, to do that. But uh, you know, this is one of the most one of if not the most complex, um, independent film productions that's ever been mounted in Memphis, and because of the depth of the music uh, of, of the music rights. There's also songs that like nobody knows who wrote them. You know, I can
0: think of one in particular that you might be
1: referencing. Yeah. There's an issue like, right. (laughs) Who would you really pay for that? Who do you really pay for that? Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's, it's a big, complicated problem. And, you know, maybe I trusted the wrong people, but, or maybe that we had no business doing this in the first place, but it exists. It's a great film and I love it and I'm not giving up on it. I've still, we're still in, still in conversation with folks trying to get some money. You know, and, and it's a different environment now um, because when we were putting this out, this was on the, the tail end of the DVD era and we, the the business model originally included like a DVD box set that would, you know, with, with like soundtrack and everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, we tried to bundle soundtracks on the deal and everything. Uh, but it's just, I don't you know, like we've had people who, like I said, would come right up, almost do it. We had one person, who was going to do it and then their fiance found out how much they were going to give us and cracked down and said no we're having a baby and they kind of
0: (laughs) that put the kibosh on that
1: I had somebody uh, offer us a million bucks to buy the whole movie for a million dollars one time and this is somebody who had that who had that money that was on the table and they were like they, they, they made that offer to us and uh, they said, do you have, because they'd seen it at a festival and then they were like, will you send us a DVD? So, and this that's how long ago this was. So that we can take it to our, to the rest of our organization here, you know, but they were a decision maker in this organization. And because they had a new, they had a new company and, uh, and we sent the DVD and then we heard back from them like four or five days later, they literally sent the DVD back and said, yeah, um, this is uh, too locally focused, and we need something that's. You know, we we thought there would be like you know Greg Ginn's in the movie, Mike Watts in the movie, you know John Densmore from the Doors is in the sure, movie. Sure, and I
0: mean it addresses Alex Chilton.
1: Chilton, and it, yeah, REM. Talking, are Mike mentioned. Mills is in the movie. You know, uh, but they were like, yeah, we needed we needed more famous people. You know, and because we we were like we were gonna buy this from you from a million, and then we we're gonna flip it for three or four million for through our through our contacts. You know, uh, but we don't think we can we can get you know four million bucks for this movie. And I was like, I know, <laughs> <laughs> I've been running the numbers on this film for years all different scenarios i never made it to a million bucks okay and the whole thing is not why we made it. that's not why we made it and and the whole thing is designed which actually has turned out to be like in the it's turned out to be a liability frankly it was designed in the indie mindset to like build it as expensive you know as cheaply as possible but like understand who who your audience is understand how big the audience is and how much they're going to pay they would be willing to pay for it and set the budget like that that's the same way to set budgets right not what they do in hollywood now which is another story but but when they're spending 200 million dollars on a film and then and then we're going to spend 200 million dollars on the film we're going to spend 200 million dollars to uh promote it and just let the promotion let all those ads like put people in Put asses in seats, and then we don't care what the quality is. That's the story behind the Marvel universe and the Flash. Yeah, but, but that's not that's not the indie way, right? The indie way is how many pe- how many people can I reach with this? How much are they going to pay me? We make the movie for that much. I've made that calculation over and over and over again. I never made it two million dollars, and so I said, hey, I was like, listen, I was like, yeah, you're right. This movie's not going to make four million dollars. You're right, okay, but. You were going to give me a million dollars last week. You know, I need x amount which is an order of magnitude lower than a million dollars. That's what I need. You give me that much money, I guarantee that you will make a profit on this. I guarantee mm-hmm. it. No, no, we're really in the million dollar range. That's that's really the range that we're working in. Sorry, thanks. It's like, I mean, what do you can't do with that?
0: Less money?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you can't, can't give get, me less than a million dollars. You can't give me less money? <laughs> A pittance, uh, a pittance compared to that yeah you know that's so, wild man anyways it's been really hard but that you know it's not just me um that's the that's well like i said that that black lodge viewing and then the 10th year anniversary screening that we did at Indie memphis that gave me the movie back emotionally
0: mm-hmm.
1: um i can be proud of it and proud of myself again and i tell you it's one of the things that's been really hard and i've given up on a lot of movies i've written 10 uh feature screenplays. Uh, I've pitched movies in Hollywood. Um, I've done a lot. I've I've uh, been a writing assistant. I've consulted on stuff. I've ghostwritten stuff. And um, I've given up on a lot of projects that I was very enthusiastic about because they're not going to go. And so I, that's not the issue. I can give up on stuff. <laughs> you know, you have to. You have to. Oh, yeah. Okay. You have to be able to do that. But I... Or call it done at less than perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, movies are never, films are never finished. They're only abandoned. Yeah. Uh, and which drove George Lucas crazy, <laughs> of course, but it's the truth. Uh, and, um, but this one, because Antenna, because it is the story of a community, the community that I care about and that I was a member of, you know, even if I wasn't as cool and big as the rest of the people in the community. I was a member of that community and I felt like a big obligation to this community to tell that story and to get this story out. And that's what hurts so much. If it was just a regular movie, it's just my movie. I would have ditched it a long time ago, but I have to keep going and I have to keep trying because it's not just about me. It's about this community and about these musicians. And I firmly believe still, still, I love that music still. I'll listen to it. Yeah. even after everything you know and and believe me man i we got tied up in 30 years of memphis music politics and oh lord you think it's bad now <laughs> it was a lot worse when everybody was on Quaaludes. <laughs> I've believe me i've i've heard the stories you know i'm Bob. gonna tell you yeah <laughs> yeah so anyways um i'm sorry for you yapping on about that. Oh but.
0: no, it's it's fine. I I feel bad because we're gonna have to we're gonna have to cut it short because we actually have to go to another taping at five. But um, so I hate to end on like what feels like a little bit of a downer. But I wanted to let you know, like I don't, you know, maybe there's someone out there who's blaming you guys, but uh, you know, I don't hear that. Only thing I hear is gratitude for what you guys have done, and I I loved the film when I saw it, and you know I i'm I'm with you I'm behind you and i you know I really hope that that you get this thing where you want it to go
1: well I appreciate that and I know it's take i mean that that was a lot of the negativity and the disappointment that I've had that's how I felt about it for a long time i I'm in a better place f- about it now uh, and um I'm super proud of it and I really want to get it out uh and you know, maybe, I don't, maybe it'll still happen. I, I've so many times, I you believe not understand. I've, there's, it's up, it's up on a private link that you use to, that, uh, you know, you use to like send it around to show to people and, sure. you know, to, to pitch it and send it to film festivals and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with the private EPK, what have you. Right. Sure. I
1: don't know how many times I've woken up and then I was like, I'm just going to fucking make that link public and put it out there and walk the fuck away. I've, so many times and then I just won't you know. Yeah. I don't do it because what's gonna happen is it's just gonna get yanked down. Yeah. So, um yeah. Well so if anybody out there is listening and they have a spare few tens of thousands of dollars to gamble with Hit look up oddly buoyant productions yeah hit me up i'm a you can find me i'm on all the social medias i'm, I'm still a film and tv editor from if it's flyer you can get me there read my stuff read the flyer um and uh thank you so much for for having me i, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get i don't want i want to end on a bum note either no it's you know i don't think this i think we i think we pulled it back okay i think so okay yeah,
0: i think we're i think we're ending on a positive <laughs> note Chris, but I can't thank you enough for having me on. Dude, thank you for, for meeting me here and for talking with me. Back to the Light is produced by J.D. Rieger, associate producer, Eric Wilson. The opening theme is Arthur with two H's. The closing theme is Joey Pegram of Shabadoo. More episodes, music, and other fine podcasts, visit backtothelight.net.